0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for yet another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 71 for the third quarter of April 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, part 6, Andy Lloyd's Dark Star. The basic claim for this episode is that through some modifications to the basic idea, Andy can get the Planet X idea of Zechariah Sitchin to be a real possibility. Andy Lloyd is a devotee of Zechariah Sitchin. Sitchin isn't the creator of the idea of Planet X, but he is probably the founder of a branch of Planet X pseudoscience. Very much like Velikovsky's ideas have been taken over by a huge number of other people and adjusted for their own means, Sitchin's ideas have had the same done to them. Andy Lloyd is one of those people. So even though Sitchin's stuff was the subject of my first episode on The Fake Story of Planet X, episode 23 from over a year ago, it bears some need for review for those who may be new to the podcast. Zachariah Sitchin, the late Zachariah Sitchin, was a man who claimed to read ancient Sumerian tablets. I say claimed because no other archaeologist actually agrees with his translations. In his translations of those tablets, he claimed that the Sumerians showed a 12th planet in the solar system, where you had 11 other planets, including Pluto, the Sun, Earth's moon, and that this 12th planet was his Planet X. He called it, or translated it, as Nibiru, Somehow, he determined that this planet had a 3,600-year-long highly elliptical orbit that took it from well out beyond Pluto to at least very close to Earth's orbit, if not inside of Earth's orbit. He claimed that an intelligent race of aliens called the Anunnaki, with spaceships who lived tens of thousands of years long, lived on this planet and still live there today. He claimed that on one such trip to the inner solar system, they hopped onto Mars, used it as a base, then traveled to Earth, or maybe vice versa. On Earth, they mined for gold, they grew tired of mining for gold, and they genetically engineered early humans to be their slave race, and they sent gold back to their own planet to put into their atmosphere to prevent global warming. That's really the basic story in roughly a minute. I addressed the numerous reasons why this cannot be true in episode 23, so I do recommend listening to it, if you haven't, and if you're interested in hearing more. Andy Lloyd does not believe in everything Sitchin said. I listened to somewhere around four hours of his material in preparation for this episode, and it was very refreshing to hear him say that many of the ideas that Sitchin claimed are impossible, at least in his 2008 interview. George Norrie, the host of Coast to Coast AM, where I heard these interviews, tried to find at least some common ground with Sitchin's ideas, and he did get Andy to accept ideas of panspermia and that an actual planet exists, but honestly it was really nice to hear someone say that they liked Sitchin's ideas, and he used them as a basis for his own, but in doing so he tried to reconcile Sitchin's ideas with actual astronomy, at least as Andy Lloyd understood it. With that in mind, I'm going to focus first on what Andy Lloyd talked about in his 2008 interview, and then get into some of the changes that he made for 2009. As an aside, the reason I focus on these interviews instead of reading these people's books is threefold. First, it's easier for me to listen to an interview while I'm doing something else, or riding on the bus, or cleaning my apartment, than having to devote all of my attention to reading a book. Second, I read kind of slowly. Uh, No, actually, second, I don't want to give these people money. Third, what people say in interviews often gives you a better insight into what they really think than what you can get in just their printed word. They, quote, let their hair down, as the saying goes, and you can get a feel for what's really going on inside their head when they talk about this kind of stuff. Which is why, in this episode, I'm going to discuss the two interviews that I've heard of him separately. His book, The Dark Star, was published October 1st, 2005. It currently has about a four and a half star rating out of nine reviews on the usamazon.com store. Only one review is a one star. From his bio, he has an undergraduate degree in chemistry and is currently a registered general nurse in the UK. He's not a professional astronomer, physicist, nor geologist, but unlike Sitchin and unlike Velikovsky, or even someone like Greg Braden, or Mike Barra, or Richard Hoagland, Andy does have some background in science, and that at least makes some of what he suggests sort of, kind of, possibly plausible. As I started off with, Andy is a devotee of Sitchin, and what I mean by this is that he's fascinated by Sitchin's ideas from his books, and wanted to figure out if they could really be true. What he found was that many of Sitchin's ideas simply are physically impossible. Which, as I said, was impressive. I mean, I don't often say this about people I discuss on the podcast, but Andy Lloyd, a published author in a UFO magazine and a fan of Sitchin's, was willing to stand up and say that Sitchin was wrong on several different things. One is the 3600-year orbiting planet. Andy somewhat correctly stated that if there were such a planet that had been on its orbit for the lifetime of the solar system, the solar system would be much more chaotic, and it's unlikely that Earth would have survived due to gravitational perturbations. He also doesn't really think that a 3,600-year orbiting planet works with how far away it needs to be now and to not have been detected. He advocates something more like 5,000 to 10,000 years in orbit and that it may have only been recently launched on such a trajectory that takes it sort of close to Earth, recently as in maybe 100,000 years ago. Another major difference between his scenario and Sitchin's, and one that gives the book its title, is that the actual world on which the Anunnaki live is what he terms a moon of a brown dwarf. Let me state right away that it would not be a moon of a star just like Earth is not a moon of the sun. It would be a planet. That personally it ticked me off every time I heard him call it a moon. But moving on, he claims that basically the sun is part of a binary star system with its companion star being a brown dwarf around which the planet uh, with the Anunnaki live. This solves one of the other major issues with Sitchin's idea in that there's no heat source and that when Nibiru would be closest to the sun, it would be somewhat Earth-like, but when it's far way, way beyond Pluto, it would be frozen. The planet orbiting a brown dwarf star on a very close orbit would stay warm. There are a few problems with this, but I'll get into those in a bit. I mean, the basic idea is that it solves this problem of Sitchin's idea. Those are really the major changes to Sitchin's basic premise. Different orbit and it orbits around a binary companion to the sun. It seems like these were really an honest attempt to figure out how to make Sitchin's stuff work out, but within a plausible physical context. Hence the quote, For Sitchin to be right, it's got to work. It, it's got to make sense so that, you know, when this, and I say when because I'm absolutely convinced it's out there, when uh, the Planet X object is discovered, it it's a plausible scenario with some sort of concrete uh, physical underpinning. With that in mind, I was honestly really rooting for the guy, but we can look at whether these two changes solve the problems, or if they introduce major new ones. The first problem that it does not solve is the lack of historic observations. I'm going to get this out of the way first because it's not really astronomy, even though it was the last thing I discussed in Sitchin's episode. The idea is that all of these ancient civilizations were excellent stargazers and recorders of the sky. And yet, we're asked to believe that the only record of a friggin' planet, and in this case, a star with a planet around it, swinging by, is only recorded in an improperly translated tablet from one ancient civilization. To me, that strains credulity. The second of the two non-astronomy issues is coevolution or convergent evolution. Lloyd's scenario is that both Earth and Nibiru were seeded by very, very primitive life. Basically, panspermia idea, and you can listen to Astronomy Cast episode between 52 and 53 on panspermia for more about that. It's not something I really want to get into. The point is that in only maybe the last few hundred thousand years that Nibiru and Earth have had any close contact, somehow, both the Anunnaki and humans, you know, separated by lots and lots of distance and separated for, you know, what, a few billion years, Somehow we evolved to be the same kind of shape and same kind of biology. The only difference is that the Anunnaki live longer, which Andy says is because they're farther away from the sun, and so they're less exposed to radiation, and the, difference, or the other difference being that they're a little bit taller. I mean, that, that doesn't work. I mean, that means that they would have had to evolve along the same path that humans did, which is pretty much impossible and one of the major issues as a side issue that Steve Novella had with the movie Prometheus from last year. But it's really a popular misconception. This idea that somehow if conditions like the environment were exactly the same, then you would get life evolving the exact same way. It doesn't work that way. That's not how evolution works. Although if you're a fan of something like intelligent design and or God did it, then this isn't that big of an issue for you but the other things should be there are a couple of different astronomy and physics issues with this scenario, but I'm really just going to hit the two main ones that struck me while listening to him while I was cleaning my office and other parts of my apartment because we had inspections today. Thank you, Boulder city inspections. Anywho, the first problem has to do with the idea of the planet orbiting a star. And that's what comes by earth. So let's step back a bit. Andy proposed this as a method to keep the inhabitants of Nibiru warm when the planet is in the far reaches of the solar system. He also used it for plausibility. Much of Andy's interviews were spent explaining that the outer solar system is still a mystery and that he was just saying, in principle, these ideas are not that crazy and they're accepted by and supported by many real astronomers these days. That being that there could be a giant planet out there, and a planet could be habitable if it orbited a brown dwarf star, and that the sun may be part of a binary star system. I'm going to get to that last point in a future episode. And that is sort of true, or at least each of those statements individually could be valid because we don't understand the outer solar system very well, and there are some anomalies that could be explained by another planet out there. However, in the absence of any actual observation, this is sort of an argument from ignorance in that we don't know what's out there, we don't know what causes some of these anomalies, and so therefore he's inserting a Planet X. It may not be, although on the other hand, it is physically plausible that it could be. This would be, of course, at least a planet in perhaps the classical sense, not necessarily under the IAU's new definition. Also, a brown dwarf star could keep a planet warm enough to support life. This is where a brown dwarf star is an object between about 13 times the size of Jupiter and about 80 times the size of Jupiter. It creates heat by probably fusing deuterium, but mostly by compressing itself. The problem is then attaching the greater Sitchin idea that this object has ever swung into the inner solar system. Andy tried to save it by saying that maybe it only recently started coming in, but I'm sorry, that just doesn't work. You're talking about not just a planet like Earth coming into the inner solar system as recorded, or actually not recorded as the case is, during historical times, but you're adding in a failed star many tens of times the mass of Jupiter. The asteroid belt would be a wreck, even from a single passage through it or nearby to it, and yet the asteroid belt shows very good dynamical stability, meaning it's been left alone with large masses where they currently are for many hundreds of millions of years. Then we get into the second problem, which is how an Earth-like planet could host life in orbit around a brown dwarf. For this, I actually cracked open some books and the calculator, had to put in new batteries, and I did some math. It's something that I haven't really done for a while for this podcast because I've been lazy. Anyway, brown dwarfs, because they're basically a filler between a cool red dwarf real star that emits energy due to fusion and a Jupiter-sized planet... They don't really have a set temperature, just like normal stars have a range of temperatures. Brown dwarfs can be anywhere from around 500k, which is around as hot as Mercury gets, although I've seen estimates that they could be as cool as 300k, and they can get up to maybe 3000k, and by k I mean Kelvin here. The average numbers that I saw for the temperature of a brown dwarf star are somewhere around 2000k or kelvins, about one-third as hot as our own star. And here we're talking about how hot the surface is, not how hot it is inside of the star itself or in its core. So let's use 2,000 kelvins as the temperature. The diameter of these is estimated to be roughly 1.5 to a few times the size of Jupiter. Now that may seem weird, first off. I mean, how can something 50 times Jupiter's mass be only three times its diameter? Just to throw out some numbers. First, Remember that mass goes with the diameter cubed. So three times the diameter, if the same density, is 27 times the mass. Second, gas compresses. And so stars are denser than planets. As a very rough estimate, you know we can say that the diameter is going to be about two times Jupiter's for this particular brown dwarf star of Andy Lloyd's. Using the equation for planetary equilibrium temperature, which gives us around, say, 255 kelvins for Earth, which is cooler than Earth by about 20 to 30 kelvins due to greenhouse gases, then we can figure out how far from the brown dwarf Nibiru is supposed to be. Doing the math, you get around 3.5 million kilometers, or about 2.2 million miles. The distance between the Sun and Mercury is about 58 million kilometers, or 36 million miles. You know, 16 to 17 times farther away. In this situation, the brown dwarf would look about nine times larger than the Sun in our sky. So it would look really big from the surface of this planet. That in itself would be neat. But what does the closeness have to do with habitability? In interviews, Andy Lloyd makes specific analogy to Io and Europa, the two closest large moons of Jupiter. These are warmed by tidal effects with Jupiter, meaning that one side of the moon is far enough away from the far side of the moon that the difference in gravity flexes the moon enough to warm it up. As a result, Io is the most volcanic body in the solar system, and Europa probably has a sub-Icean ocean, or an ocean buried underneath the ice. This also emphasizes what Andy doesn't know about astronomy, as someone who hasn't studied it, and it's a perfect example of how, in solving perhaps one obvious problem with Sitchin's work, he's introduced a more subtle one that a layperson wouldn't necessarily know much about. In fact, you can calculate through a fairly straightforward arithmetic the amount of tidal force that the planet would experience around the hypothetical brown dwarf star at this distance of just three and a half million kilometers. When I do the math, I get something like 3 times 10 to the 26 newtons. It sounds big. In comparison, Io experiences about 4 times 10 to the 25th newtons. Our Moon experiences around 7 times 10 to the 21st newtons around Earth. In other words, The Planet X that Andy is advocating would experience nearly 10 times the tidal heating that Io does around Jupiter. Remember, Io is the most volcanically active body in the solar system that we know about. Not only would the planet quickly be tidally locked around the star, meaning that the same side would always face the star, but it would be a volcanic wasteland like Io. All right, so let's say instead that we want an equilibrium temperature of around 150 K, and assume that another 150 kelvins is produced through tides and an atmosphere. That puts the planet around 10.2 million kilometers from the brown dwarf, and it would experience only a quarter of the tidal force that Io does. But that's still over two times the tidal effect that Europa experiences, and it would still be tightly locked to the star where one side would get much hotter than the other. My science point here is that, again, he can solve the problem of a heat source by sticking this around a brown dwarf, but he introduces the lesser known problem of the effects of gravitational tides. He makes the layperson mistake of the hand wavy explanation that tides would help because it warms up the planet more, but he doesn't do the math to see that in helping, He pushes too far, and the tidal force is just too much, and regardless, at least of how I played with the numbers, you get a situation that probably can't work because you'll still end up with a tidally locked planet with one hemisphere too warm and the other too cold. You then would require a lot of special pleading in order to make everything else work, like, okay, maybe the Anunnaki live right at that dichotomy boundary between the light and dark. As I said special pleading and it's much more plausible if this simply doesn't exist. This also gets into one of my pet peeves with the amateur scientist type who claims to rewrite physics. They often say that mainstream scientists would never come up with their solution because mainstream science is all so specialized and that different fields effectively don't talk to each other. But the amateur scientist does and so solves all of society's woes. In fact, this is a perfect example of how this is often the opposite of what's true. By ignoring these other effects, and by ignoring the full implications of what he's proposing, Andy comes up with a solution to a fake problem that no professional would suggest because of these implications from other fields. But that's my own little sidebar rant for this episode, and we are getting past the 20-minute mark. The final aspect I want to talk about is where this object that Andy proposes currently resides. Perhaps humorously when asked by the radio host, where can you find the dark star? Andy replied, Sagittarius. The host, perhaps not the quickest in the pack, paused for several seconds and then replied, no, I mean the book. That bad joke aside, although mentioned for the benefit of the folks on the Coast Gab forum, Andy says that the object right now, in our sky, would be in the spot where it's hardest to find. In other words, the needle isn't lying out on the table, it's in the middle of that haystack. While that's convenient, it's honestly, in my opinion, a somewhat reasonable answer given everything else. I mean, after all, if it were out there and we haven't found it, it must be difficult to find, and Sagittarius is towards the center of the galaxy, so there are lots of other objects for it to hide among. Here's also where I want to get into the difference between his 2008 and 2009 interviews. When I listened to his 2008 interview, it sounded like a guy who liked science and liked Sitchin and wanted to fix Sitchin's idea to make it work, and he published this book and was doing the radio circuit a few years after publication. In other words, he seemed reasonable. He talked about how infrared sky surveys were somewhat sort of incomplete, and he talked about the 1983 IRAS non-discovery. Now, he did mischaracterize it by simply saying that there were some controversies among different parts of the IRAS science team, and that some objects weren't followed up. Alright, he was wrong, as I discussed in episode 54, The Fake Story of Planet X Part 5, but perhaps an honest mistake by a guy who was simply reading stuff at a non-expert level. Then, eight months later, in March of 2009, he was on the radio again he spent his entire first hour talking about how it's all a conspiracy that nasa founded in the iras survey it's hiding it and then he misquotes the washington post article that it was all this big cover-up He even says that President Reagan went before the UN and proposed the question of what would happen if we were under a common threat by aliens, and it was just a year later that the USSR collapsed, quote, due to economic problems, but economic issues were never a problem for the Soviets in the past. It seriously sounded like a different person. I, unfortunately, can't read minds, but I wondered if maybe the conspiracy stuff was just an act in order to appeal to the more ufo and the fringe audiences. The problem with this again is that he doesn't do the simple math. The absolute magnitude of a brown dwarf star is around plus 22. The magnitude scale is a measurement of brightness where bright objects have low numbers like the sun is about minus 26 and faint objects have big numbers like pluto's is around positive 14. The absolute magnitude is how bright the object is if it's 10 parsecs away, which is about 33 light years. You can use a very, very simple formula to figure out how bright a brown dwarf star with an absolute magnitude of plus 22 would be in our sky if it were on an orbit with a period of 5000 years. Now when I do the math, I get somewhere around an apparent magnitude of plus 3. The faintest object visible to the unaided eye is around plus 6, and in an urban area plus 3 is about the limit. In other words, this would be visible to the unaided eye in the middle of a city. It's brighter than the planet Uranus, it's brighter than Neptune, and it's brighter than the faintest that Mercury gets, and yet somehow we haven't seen it. Andy claimed that this was because most of its light is emitted in the infrared. But I'm not talking about infrared magnitude, where it would be even brighter, I'm talking about visible light. The average brown dwarf star has a visible light absolute magnitude of plus 22. Now there are a few other things that I could pick on that Andy said, although I think I've really covered some of the major holes with his idea. Only one more is barely worth mentioning, and that's in his line about how NASA covered up the IRAS apparent discovery. He claimed that NASA first said it found a Jupiter-sized object in orbit around the sun, but then they watered it down to say that it was Neptune-sized, and then they watered it down even more to say that it was a far-off galaxy. Then he said this. And, uh, I mean, how would you pick up a galaxy in infrared? You know, they were just throwing ideas out to try and water the story down. This shows, at this point, some general ignorance of the field of astronomy, for which he's professing competence. The answer is pretty basic. As stuff is farther away from us, it's moving faster due to the expansion of the universe. Light waves get spread out just like sound waves do when you move away from the source of the sound, or the light in this case. Longer light wavelengths are redder. You eventually push past the visible to peak in the infrared. It's not that hard. It's something that you learn in an introductory astronomy course. In fact, it's usually something that you learn in high school, and yet something that he apparently doesn't know, and so it becomes part of the conspiracy and shows his lack of comprehension of the subject. And this all gets back to my original point, that Andy obviously does know more astronomy than Sitchin did or than some of these other folks do. But he's still limited by not having a rounded idea of the implications of his dark star idea. He proposes something that's perhaps more plausible than Sitchin's model, but it's fundamentally flawed in many ways, putting it into the realm of yet another fake story of Planet X. There is a new news item this week, and thank you to those who sent it in. Actually, several of you sent it in. This relates to episode 27. The International Astronomical Union this past weekend had a press release reiterating its stance that all the companies that are out there that offer naming of planets and stars and asteroids and various things are scams in its view. In other words, they have no bearing on the official naming process. It was not explicitly stated in the IAU press release, but it was figured out by most news sources that reported it, that this was probably aimed at the Project Uingu, which is a Swahili word meaning sky. Uingu started up last year, and it's actually run by astronomers. Uingu, at least in my reading of their materials, is somewhat different from the other companies. In the case of Owingoo, as with most others, they do state that these names are not recognized by NASA nor other agencies. But, as I said, the board of Owingoo is made up of actual astronomers, and the hope of awingu is that these names will eventually be used by professional astronomers simply because there are so many objects out there and this gets the public involved in the naming process for 99 cents or 4.99. Iwingu also states that the money raised goes to grants for astronomical research, and that they've already donated to Astronomers Without Borders and the Allen Telescope Array, which is run by SETI. I haven't seen any of these other companies do anything like that, and that's about all there is to do with this particular new news item. Due to time, I'm avoiding Q&A this episode, but I do have some feedback. First, related to last episode, I had, again, several people sending me in the correct pronunciation of the person who asked the question for Q&A. My apologies go to Ciaran, or at least that should be a closer pronunciation than what it's supposed to be. This is an Irish name that has Gaelic origin, and so to my Majorcan vocal cords, it is difficult to pronounce. If you do send me feedback and you think that your name might not be something like Jake or Mike or something very simple like that, it would really help if you gave me a pronunciation guide. There's also feedback related to a very old episode, episode 18, on the ancient alien's idea. In the episode, the guest and I mentioned that Robert Bouval, who I focused more on in episode 34 with the Giza Pyramid vs. Orion non-correlation, was one of the ancient alien advocates. Richard F. had written in to me back last August, asking me to back up this claim, and I did so with some statements from Buval provided by the dumbass, the guest who was on that episode. Richard wrote back to me just this past week with a statement from Buval, posted to Facebook, regarding the ancient aliens show on the History Channel. It's a little bit long, but I think the two paragraphs are worth quoting word for word. It starts out with, quote... As you all may know, I've participated on many occasions in various episodes of this show. My topic was principally ancient Egypt. My position of the issue of alien visitation is that although I remain open to the possibility that Earth may have been visited in the distant past by entities from other worlds, I nonetheless have not as yet seen hard evidence that convinces me. True, there are many anomalies around the world that are hard to explain, but it doesn't mean that they are the result of extraterrestrial intervention. Being interested in cosmology, I concede that anything is possible in this universe, but the issue of ET visitations in the past is not proven, and must remain an open question for now. Having said this, I cannot condone the position taken by many participants who speak of ET visitations as if it is a matter of established facts. I also cannot condone the extremely wild speculations that are being made on the latest episodes. Therefore, I have decided not to participate any more on this show until, and if, the producers take the ET issue more seriously and base the show on solid and proper research and cautious speculation. I believe that authors in the field of alternative history have a duty of care and responsibility to their public, "...and that what they present to them should be serious research and cautious speculations." End quote. While this doesn't negate episodes 18 nor 34, it is interesting that Buval appears to have had a falling out with the show and its good clarification, so apparently he is not a fan of ancient aliens. That means that it's time for the puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was, Saturn's rings are tens of thousands of kilometers across, but they are, literally, only about 10 meters thick. Why are they so thin relative to their horizontal extent? Congratulations to Warwick for being the first to send in a correct answer with honorable mention to Eric, Lath, Steve, and Phil. Because Warwick's answer is very extensive, and while it's still correct, I'm going to post it to the website but used a modified version of Phil's for the podcast. Basically, any ring particle orbiting in a different plane from the others will pass through that plane twice per orbit, causing it to collide with other particles when it passes through. These collisions are at least partially inelastic, meaning that, unlike billiard balls, it's more like hitting two snowballs together. This means that energy will be dissipated in each collision. So, the up-and-down motion is going to be quickly averaged out, and they'll all end up in almost the exact same orbital plane. This episode, with the main segment on Planet X, the puzzler deals with tides. I talked about how a planet orbiting very close to its star will quickly become tidally locked. For the puzzler, why do objects become tidally locked? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at net. I'll discuss it during the next episode and that episode will be about some solar system mysteries that were solved by pseudoscience but actually have real, physical, sciencey solutions now. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. In terms of announcements, first off, Thank you to all who liked the podcast on Facebook. You did wonders for my self-esteem by passing the 200 mark to 228 as I record this. Also, shame on the person who unliked it. For a second announcement, and this is um, unfortunately a sad bit to end with, and the news is brand new. In fact, it literally came in my email as I was recording this episode. Um, This relates to the Skeptoid podcast. It appears as though Brian Dunning, the host and producer of the Skeptoid podcast, has pled guilty to wire fraud. Based on standard sentencing guidelines, he'll likely face several years in prison. I'll have a link in the show notes um, to the blog post with all of the legal documents and analysis, and I should make very clear that I am basing this announcement on that blog post with those legal documents. I bring this up because I've used Skeptoid in a lot of my episodes. I enjoy the Skeptoid podcast, and this podcast itself is based in part on that model. It's sad news to end the episode with, but I wanted to get it out there before you hear it from someone like Sylvia Brown or Ghost Hunters or the Water Purifier people. That wraps up this topic for the 71st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on my blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even send me a tweet. I'm at pseudo, as in P-S-E-U-D-O, astro, A-S-T-R-O. Together now, that's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, Tell your friends and family, and multiple random people on the internet whom you'll probably never meet in real life.